Joshua chapter 22 this morning, we're going to begin in verse number 10. We're going to read the remainder of the chapter. And I don't think we'll get through the, the remainder of the chapter today, but we will uh, continue with chapter 22 again next week also. Verses 10 through 34 are all primarily dealing with the, the, the single event. So we, we're going to read all of those. And Joshua chapter 22, verse number 10. It says, And when they had come unto the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. And the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten princes of each chief house of priests throughout all the tribes of Israel, and each one was a head of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, unto the land of Gilead, and they spake with them, saying, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel? to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that ye have builded you an altar, that ye may rebel this day against the Lord. Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us, from which we are not cleansed unto this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel." Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth in Israel he shall know if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord. Save us not this day, that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering or to or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, In time to come your children might speak unto our children, saying, What have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord." Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a for a witness between us and you and our generations after us, that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, 
ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we that it shall be when they should when they should so say to us or to our generations in time to come that ye may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offering, for meat offering, or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before His tabernacle. And when Phinehas the priest and the princes of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spake, it pleased them. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and to the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Now ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, and the princes returned from the children of Reuben, and from the children of Gad, out of the land of Gilead, unto the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought them word again. And the thing pleased the children of Israel, And the children of Israel blessed God and did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed, for it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. And let's pray. Father, we ask for wisdom in understanding your word and in understanding its application to us. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word, for your giving it to us. And um, we just ask your blessing on this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you, you, you certainly probably detected that these verses are, are dealing with conflict and, and the resolution of conflict. When I was listening to the radio about 20 years ago, maybe longer, I, I always I remembered that Dr. J. Vernon McGee had read this poem on the radio one day, and it always st- stuck with me. It's a very short one. To dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to stay below with the saints I know, that's another story. <laughs> and, you know, that we have problems in our, in our lives. We have problems amongst our, our own people. We have problems in the church. And... It's, it's a reality. Um, we are certainly given instructions in Scripture to minimize those problems and to deal with those problems, but nevertheless, they arise. And that's what happens here in Joshua chapter 22. There's a conflict. There's, there's a dispute. In verse number 10, we see that they, the two and a half tribes, and I remember last week, at the beginning of chapter 22, we, we saw that Joshua had sent the two and a half tribes away. He had sent them back to the the land that Moses and the Lord had promised them on the east side of the Jordan River. They had been extremely faithful and had performed uh, their, they had made good on their promise to spend however long it took. And they ended up spending seven years helping the, the other nine and a half tribes conquer the land on the west side of the Jordan River. But now they've been sent back. And so on their way back, we see here in verse 10, they build an altar. And it's a great altar. It's a tall altar. It was built that way to be very visible. Uh, it used to be years ago, in uh, many, many years ago in our country, that it was very common for the, the tallest building in a, in a town to be the church. The steeple would be the thing that would be the most visible. 
And that was for a couple of reasons. One, it, it allowed people to know where the location of the church was, and also it was a reminder to people as they went about their day-to-day business that you know they were to keep their mind focused and centered on the Lord. And so it was very prominent. Now, of course, with the with the advent of skyscrapers and and tall office buildings, you know, they, they, the churches are many times are go unnoticed. They're not nearly as visible as they used to be. Nevertheless, they build this altar. There's some dispute about which side of the the river it's on. Um, even those that that seem to be experts in Hebrew are are in disagreement as to whether it was built on the west side or the east side of the Jordan River. It's certainly built on the riverbank. And we'll we'll talk about more about that as we, as we go, but uh, maybe they should have consulted with the leaders of of the other tribes, or or at a minimum with Joshua. They didn't, um, and that's you know really what we have here in chapter twenty two is is a big misunderstanding. Um, you know they sometimes you know we we have a tendency to think that it's probably easier to proceed when we have doubt. Um, you know it's. We kind of joke about it where, where I work. You know, sometimes it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And whether or not that's what they were thinking, I'm not really sure. But nevertheless, they, they don't ask. And, and had they done that first, they might have saved, they might have saved a, a, lot of, a lot of trouble and a lot of misunderstanding. I, my dad frequently tells a story when he was working on a construction crew back in the early 1960s. Uh, when he was in his early 20s, the, the boss had been getting after the crew about, you know, staying busy and, 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 you know, not standing around and waiting to be given instructions about something to do. And one time I, they had they were building a new house and they had built the front porch and the posts all had protruded up quite a bit higher than the railing on the porch. And so my dad thought, well, rather than wait for somebody to tell me what to do, he just went along and cut off all those posts, even with the railing on the porch. And then the boss came along and he was just, Sick, he said. Jerry, what have you done? I, those were going to be decorative posts. We were going to shape the top of those posts. And you know, my dad thought, well, you know, you said you didn't even want anybody standing around. You know, you wanted us to get busy. And well, that's probably kind of similar to what's going on here. You know, they're they're we're not we're not always. It's a difficult balance. We're we're not always very clear on when we need to. You know, when we should act independently and when we need to seek counsel from others and when we need to ask permission from leadership. But nevertheless, that's what they've done. They've built this altar. Most agree, uh, there is certainly not universal agreement, but a lot, agree, a, a lot of scholars do agree that this was built on the west side of the Jordan River, which of course was the, the you know, was across the river from where the two and a half tribes resided. And... Um, so if the argument was going to be that they built it uh, to avoid the inconvenience of having to cross the river, well, if, if you are one that believes that it was built on the west side of the river, then that would eliminate that argument. Um, and, you know, as we read in the, in the latter part of the chapter, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of debate amongst themselves, you know, as to certainly there was a misunderstanding on the part of the nine and a half tribes as to whether or not it was built for the purposes of doing the same thing on this altar that was to be done on the altar in Shiloh. In verse number 11, news gets back to the, to the other nine and a half tribes. The, the rumor is heard that they're building an altar, and it's very true. There's nothing in verse 11 that is inaccurate. They haven't yet ascribed motives. They've just heard the news that an altar has been built. 
And of course, the entire congregation is very much aware of, of how angry God gets when they disobey. And, you know, there were numerous incidents throughout 40 years of wandering the wilderness where, where they witnessed the anger of the Lord. And they've also witnessed the anger of the Lord within the, the seven-year battle, you know, particularly in regard to the situation with Achan. So you know, they're very concerned about what's going on here with this altar. They're very concerned that God's judgment is going to fall on them. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. We just looked at this passage a few weeks ago, and, and so I certainly I don't want to uh, bore us, but I, I do think it's worthwhile to look at again because I think it really gives us a, a better understanding of where the the nine and a half tribes are coming from in, in you know with regards to this confrontation with the two and a half tribes because of what's you know the instructions that God had given in Deuteronomy twelve that they're well aware of. Deuteronomy chapter twelve verse one says either these are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribe to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. And that's Shiloh. And thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds, and of your flocks. And there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For ye are not yet, for ye are, ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither ye shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave off, and the heave offering of your hand and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice from the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants, and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So the nine and a half tribes are very well, of, well aware of these instructions. And so they certainly see the altar that has been erected along the Jordan River as a threat to the altar that has, has been built in Shiloh, which is the place that the Lord shall choose. And these instructions are very clear that God says there's one place where you're to bring your offerings. There's one place where you make your sacrifices. There's one place where you are to, to come and worship. So they're very concerned. They, they now, you know, we have the benefit of, of obviously having read the remainder of Joshua chapter 22, but they jump to the conclusion. It seems that they jump to the conclusion that, that the, the, the new altar, 
that's built by the two and a half tribes is going to be used for apostasy and idolatry, or, or even if it, that's not what it's intended to be used for, that it's probably going to lead to that. They, they don't have a personal vendetta. Uh, they, they don't mention that this is for selfish reasons, you know, that they feel offended that the two and a half tribes decided, even if they had decided that they weren't going to worship, you know, nine tribes making the government to defend it because they don't want to worship. No, they're truly trying to defend the Lord's name. They, they are viewing this as an affront to God. They're saying you are in disobedience to the clear commands of the Lord. This, this is not anything personal. I have relatives that haven't spoken to each other for decades because of the pettiest of offenses. It's just discouraging to hear about you know, reasons why, why various people haven't spoken to one another. I mean, just those things. You, really? you haven't talked to each other for 20 years because of that? And, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure many of you could you know, recount similar situations, and that's, that's very unfortunate. Now, back in Joshua chapter 22, verse 12, notice at the end of the verse that the, the, the nine and a half tribes, they're ready to go to war over this. They, they make it perfectly clear. It says that, you know, they, they gathered in Shiloh, to, together at Shiloh, to go up to war against them. And so, you know, then we, we ask the question, is this wrong? Not really. And I, and I think we'll see that as, as we continue on through, through several of the next verses. Um, remember, de- they haven't decided that war is inevitable. They have decided that this is worth going to war over. There's a difference. Um, you know, they, they, they're still, they still plan to have a discussion, which we obviously read that they did have, and were able to reach a peaceable, peaceable resolution. But, so they, they haven't decided that war is inevitable, but they have decided that this is worth going to war over, that protecting the Lord's name is, is worth that. And, you know, um, I certainly was asking myself the question as I was studying this, you know, what lengths are we willing to go to to protect the Lord's name and to, to remain faithful to the Lord and to see to it that, you know, those that we associate with in our church are, are faithful to the Lord. You know, what, how, how much are we willing to intervene? Their willingness to go to war uh, against people who have just spent seven years helping them win a war demonstrates that their priorities are right. They are putting God first and family second. They could have had the attitude that these guys just spent seven years helping us win a war. Let's let them do whatever they want. You know, they've, they've earned this. You know, they've earned the right to do whatever they want. And it doesn't mean they're of all of the at all. They're just, they want to remain faithful to the Lord and they're willing to do what's necessary. Their willingness to, to go to war demonstrates their zeal for God. They also would have been very tired and wanting rest. Seven years of war, you know. But they're saying, hey, if we've got to take up arms again in order to, you know, prevent this nation from descending into idolatry and descending into a situation where we're going to see the judgment of God again, well, that's what we're willing to do. So that's, and notice in verse number 28, Notice in the, in, the, in the middle part of verse 28, it says, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. The altar that they had just built along the Jordan River is patterned after the altar that was built in Shiloh. It may have very well been an exact replica. That's kind of what that word means there in, in verse 28, pattern. Um, it's perfectly logical that the nine and a half tribes suspect 
that this altar is being built to rival the one in Shiloh and that it's being built to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. I mean, obviously we have read further on down that that isn't the, you know, the other two and a half tribes certainly make the argument that that isn't what it was being built for, but uh, it's understandable that it, it certainly looks that way. This seems to lend credibility to the, to the slippery slope mentality. You know, that, that the nine and a half tribes are making the argument, you know, it, it's a fully functional altar. It's going to be so easy for you to just decide to go ahead and, and, you know, use it in the same way that the one in Shiloh should be used. It's going to be very easy to just decide, you know, Shiloh, that, that's a long ways away. We've got a perfectly good altar here that's much closer. And so, you know, is it really going to be such a big deal if we go ahead and offer our burnt offerings and our sacrifices here? After all, we're, we're really busy and we're kind of in a hurry and this would save a couple of days off of our journey. And I mean, you know how it goes. We, we can talk ourselves into a lot of things. We can rationalize things. And so I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly understandable that these nine and a half tribes are very, very leery about this whole thing. They see this as, as a real threat and a potential danger. You know, ounce prevention is worth a pound of cure. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. You know, one of the, the expressions that I hear a lot nowadays, particularly uh, in, in, in my workplace, is, you know, to each his own. Everybody can just do their own thing. You know, we, we don't want to judge. We, I think that's a, very, that's a very dangerous mentality to have. But Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 18, gives instructions for people on how to deal with these, these conflicts, how to deal with the handling of rumors. Notice in verse number 12, Deuteronomy 13:12, if thou, if thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold, if it be truth and a thing certain, that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. Thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shalt burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof, every whit for the Lord thy God. And it shall be in heap forever, it shall not be built again. And there shall cleat, and there shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show thee mercy and have compassion on thee and multiply thee as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, when thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments which I command thee this day to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. So the instructions here, verse number 12, says inquiry is to be made first and then severe action taken such as war, such as capital punishment. And that's what the nine and a half tribes are doing. They're following protocol. They're ready to go to war, but they're they're asking questions first. They are going to the two and a half tribes, seeking an explanation. Notice verse number 14 here, Deuteronomy 13, 14. Inquire, search, ask diligently, and then, if it's true, if it's certain, then take action. 
You know, they've got to get to the bottom of it. I remember years ago, a pastor was talking to us. And he says, somebody in the church has made an, a- an accusation against someone else in the church. He says, I don't think it's true. He says, but I've at least got to look into it. You know, that's following the pattern here in verses 12, 14. Uh, inquire, search, seek diligently, you know, and find out whether there's any truth in the matter. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Another passage, another command given to them in order to uh, get, let them know how to handle conflict and, re- and seek resolution. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. It says, if you, if, you know, what it's saying there essentially is if you hate someone, you're not going to have any interest in helping them. But if you love someone, you'll rebuke them. And that, that's a good test for us. We'll look at the way we deal with our children. You know, how, how is our love for our children best demonstrated? When we intervene. When we rebuke them. When we take the time and the effort to discipline them and to, you know, confront them about certain things. You know, if, if, if we hate someone, then we're just going to say, oh, yeah, well, what do I care? Just let them do what they want. That's the argument that's being made here in Leviticus 19.17. And, and the end of that verse is, is, you know, actually worded a little bit, unfortunately. You know, it's actually saying there that if you refuse to do so, you're not only not helping that person, but you're not helping yourself. When you help somebody else, remain faithful to the Lord, that's going to be an encouragement to you also to remain faithful to the Lord. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I'll look at one of the New Testament passages that echo the same sentiment. There's many one another passages in the New Testament. We'll just, we'll just look at one here. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Of course, we're all familiar with, most of us I'm sure are familiar with Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceit. If we're, if we're truly someone's friend, we will be, you know, we will be honest with them about, about what the problem is. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The goal of confrontation with a brother is restoration. It's to encourage a, a brother to get right with God. That's, that's the goal of, of confrontation. It isn't to point out someone's sin and, and for the purposes of degrading them or to let them know that somehow I view myself as better than them. No, it's to bring them into restoration. It's to bring them into a right relationship with God. Notice the the way in which it's to be done here in in chapter 6, verse 1. With meekness. It's to be done tactfully, prayerfully, in meekness. But it is to be done. Many times our our cop-out is, well, I'm scared I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm not going to do it in a meek manner. Therefore, I just won't do it. I don't want to be involved in any, you know, I don't want to be inconvenienced by having to get involved in the, in the middle of any type of confrontation or conflict. So 
I will just avoid it altogether and, and let the responsibility fall on somebody else's shoulders to, to notice that, that something is, is wrong. And that's not what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Now back to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22, verse number 12. When they are making these plans to, 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 when they are deciding that this is worth going to war over, they are, they are doing this at Shiloh. Probably because since Shiloh was the place of the true altar, um, it would be, it would certainly remind them of just what is at stake, just how important all of this is. In verse number 13, they decide to send Phineas. There at the end of verse 13, Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And they, they, you know, they want the, the priests involved in this mediation. I mean, certainly this is a spiritual matter. This isn't certainly, this isn't merely a, you know, a business conflict or a financial matter. This is, this is the worship of the true God. This is a spiritual matter. Verse number 14, along with Phineas, they send a, a large delegation. They send leaders of all of the other ten tribes, the nine and a half tribes. Um, again, you know, this is done to illustrate the seriousness of the concern. We, we find similar encouragement or admonition in the New Testament to do the same type of thing. Second Corinthians 13.1 says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. First Timothy 5.19 says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And, and they certainly have more than that here. So in verse 15, they, they confront all, they confront the two and a half tribes. They don't, they don't just go and, and single one individual out and say, whose idea was this? And that person's going to be held responsible. No, the, the, all, all of them are going to be held responsible. All, you know, if, if there's some, if something has been done that is in violation of God's commands, the, the two and a half tribes are, are responsible as a group. But notice in verse number 15, at the end of the verse, it says, and they spake with them. And that's very important. Again, in verse number 12, they were ready to go to war. But according to what we read there in Deuteronomy, the proper procedure is, let's go try to resolve this thing peacefully with words before we have to resort to war. And that's what they do. Now, in verse number 16, they accuse them of building the altar to rebel against the Lord. They call it a trespass. They, they truly are concerned about the Lord. Again, this isn't, I, I don't see this as, I don't find evidence that they're doing this for selfish reasons, you know, that they feel personally violated, that, that you know, they, they're doing this because they're genuinely concerned about the entire nation, the entire nation meaning, meaning representative of all 13 tribes. You know, the Levites included that this is all going to have a, a big impact on their relationship with the Lord. And so they're blunt. They are direct. They are not sidestepping the issues. Maybe they are even, you know, as we read this, maybe we'd even include they're not using the, uh, the meekness that we are instructed to use in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Notice how they put it. They say, you have trespassed against the Lord. You have turned away this day from following the Lord. You rebel against the Lord. Now, again, all three of their accusations end with against the Lord. It's against the Lord that they're concerned about, not, not feeling personally, not taking this personal. And, the, you know, the question mark at the end of uh, verse 16, as I read this verse, I don't think really, I don't think what's being questioned, I don't think the nine and a half tribes are questioning whether or not they have rebelled against the Lord. 
they've pretty much already concluded that they've rebelled against the Lord. They didn't want to know why. They've already jumped to the conclusion that they're in rebellion. Now, I, I think you know, as we look throughout the remainder, of the remainder of the chapter, the ultimate conclusion is that they weren't. But at this point, they've concluded they're in rebellion against the Lord. They just want to know why. I'll turn back to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. They chose Phineas to lead this delegation and to go and, and make this inquisition and ask these questions and to confront you know, these, these two and a half tribes. And, you know, certainly that one of the reasons may have been that the fact that he was a member of the priesthood, but it also may have been because of this incident here in Numbers chapter 25, where, where Phineas demonstrated a zeal for the Lord and, and demonstrated demonstrate some leadership qualities. In Numbers chapter 25, the, the people sin and God judges them and, and Phineas intervenes. But let's look at verse number one. It says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And that's both physical and spiritual idolatry. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is this Baal Peor is the is the Canaanite fertility god, and, and of course you know God doesn't want any rivals. He wants exclusive worship. So this is in clear violation of that. It says, the Lord said, and Moses take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Look how blatant, flagrant, open sin. I mean, the verse goes out of, out of its way to make sure we know just how flagrant this is. In the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation. And, you know, as I read that verse, I, I'm reminded of sin in our world today. I mean, no longer are people content to do it in the privacy of their own home. They've just got to flaunt it. They've got it out there for everybody to see. They've got to make a reality TV show to show off the extent of their sin. I mean, that's the, that's the world that we live in. Verse number 8, or in verse number 7, And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among, from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went unto the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. So, so Phinehas' attitude is, I'm just not going to stand idly by and watch this. Watch this humiliation of, of the Lord's you know, direct defilement and, and contradiction of the Lord's clear command. And so he just kills them both. And, and you know, he, they're both guilty. I mean, he doesn't just pick on the Moabite. The Israelite is also slain. Verse number 9, And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. This is, this is God's judgment. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it in his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. So God says, Phinehas... He's going to have the promise of his family being in the priesthood forever because of this action that he was willing to take because he was so zealous 
to protect my name, God is very pleased. And God turns from His anger. His anger is appeased. Notice verses 14 through 18. And the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish women, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of a chief house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur. He was head over a people and of a chief house in Midian. These two people that were slain, that were guilty of this, they were from prominent families. And yet, there's no exception given. They didn't, they didn't get special treatment just because they were, prominent, they were from prominent families. The social status didn't play into this. They didn't, they didn't get a free pass. Verse 16, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a prince of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. So God commands the Israelites from this point forward to treat the Moabites hostile, you know, you know, to treat them poorly because they have they have provoked them and, and caused them to to sin or certainly played a part in this. So again, I mean, back to Joshua chapter 22, you know, we see that Phineas was chosen because not only he was a member of the priesthood, but, you know, certainly as a result of what took place in Numbers chapter 25, Phineas was somebody who was who was going to do something about it. He was he was going to, you know, look for the truth and and, you know, not uh, not hold anything back. He was going to make sure the matter was handled very directly and appropriately. Verse number 17, Joshua chapter 22, verse 17 here we have the nine and a half tribes. They accuse them of intending to use the altar for, for idolatry, the same type of idolatry that took place in Moab. That's their argument. Is not the iniquity of Peor too little for us? Did you know that? That's their question. Did you guys not learn anything from what happened there in Peor? From which are not from, from which we are not cleansed until this day. Their argument is. You know, sin has consequences that live on long after the sin is committed. They're saying there's still ramifications for what happened there. It just, you know, there's scars and there's wounds. Even though there's forgiveness, you know, God can forgive us of our sin. That doesn't mean that we don't have to live with the consequences of our sin. It doesn't mean that we don't remember our sin decades later. They still remember that 24,000 people died in that plague. And so, you know, their, their question to the nine and a half twa- tribes, their question to the two and a half tribes, they're saying, is it really worth it? Is the risk of building this altar really worth bringing God's judgment on our nation and, and having us fall under the, the, you know, another plague? And, you know, I, I ask myself that question. Is my sin really worth bringing God's judgment on other people? Because we're foolish if we think that our sin is, you know, we're the only ones who are affected by our sin. So when I sin, I have to ask myself that question. Is, is this sin worth bringing God's judgment on my family, on my church, on my co-workers, or whoever might stand in the path of God's judgment? Is it really worth it? That's the question they're asking these two and a half tribes. Have you guys really thought this thing through? In First Peter chapter four, verse we don't need to turn there because we're, we're running out of time, uh, and I certainly want to be able to get the remainder of chapter twenty-two done next week. In First Peter chapter four, verses one through three, Peter argues. He says, 
Each of us has sinned enough in the past. We don't need to sin anymore. We don't need to have the attitude, well, you know, I need to have time to sow my wild oats. Peter's argument is everybody has already sinned enough. There's absolutely no place in anyone's life for that type of attitude. I've got more sinning to do before I'm going to get right with the Lord. Peter said, just banish that, those thoughts from mine. That's foolishness. 2 Corinthians 5.17, of course, we're all familiar with this. We are, we are new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. Everything's supposed to be new. We don't, we're not to have the attitude, well, you know, I, I'm in a transitionary phase. You know, I can be a little bit holy and I can still, you know, cling to my, my position in the world. No, the argument is you're a new creature. You should be, you should be obedient to the Lord. I want to read you a, a paragraph from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on this section of, of the book of Joshua. Just one, one paragraph with regards to this incident here in, in Joshua chapter 22. He says, How the church needs to recover such a passionate piety, such an infatuation for the true worship of God, such an anxiety when covenant people appear to wander from the path. The church then should hold members under vigilant, I did not say vicious, discipline. Part of the problem in our day is that many erroneously assume that the church is a democracy, that therefore pluralism, even in essential doctrines, is to be expected, allowed, and welcomed. For after all, who are we to judge others to bring discipline, to bring them under discipline? We must be nice to people, you know, or they will leave the church. But the church is not a democracy. Rather, the church lives under the kingship of Jesus who has entrusted the care of his flock to elders who are to guard, protect, and discipline it. Very well stated. You know, they're, they're in, we live in a world, and, and Pastor, you know, points this out all the time, you know, our Americanism. We live in a world where overwhelming sentiment about an entire situation like what we have here in Joshua chapter 22 would be what? Mind your own business. I mean, that's just how most of us think. Don't bother me. Don't, don't be concerned about me. You've got your own life to live. You mind your own business. Let me worry about my relationship with the Lord on my own. The problem is with that, it's not biblical. I mean, we, again, we, we have all of those one another passages in the New Testament that tell us that we are to be an encouragement to one another. We are to confront one another. We are to point out to one another when we see a concern in someone's life. And it's, you know, it's becoming more dangerous, more difficult for us to contend for the faith. I mean, we just live in a, in a day when, you know, there's strength in numbers, but the number of believers is dwindling quickly. We, we just are finding ourselves increasingly more and more a, a part of the, the great minority. Um, you know, this week I, I, I read an editorial in the newspaper. Or maybe, maybe, maybe many of you also read it, you know, and, and the point of the article was that now, regardless of your political party, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, most Americans overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly approve of homosexuality. And of course, you know this is all being discussed in you know with regards to the upcoming elections. And you know the, the Republicans are are becoming uh, you know increasingly very embracing of the of the gay community and the homosexual community. And that was really the focus of the article. And I'm not. I mean, I know we we. You know, me in particular, you know, I have a tendency sometimes to to maybe harp on that issue because it's one that, that's, you know, in the forefront of, of the, you know, the news and the media that we're seeing that we're bombarded with all the time. And, of course, you know, we know there are many other great sins that are just as much a violation of God's word. We know the promiscuity, which was 
you know, embraced by our country many decades ago. So, I mean, again, I'm not I'm not trying to pick on one issue, but but, you know, that's the point. I mean, we just we're becoming so tolerant and accepting of everything. And the Bible does not the Bible's clear that's not to be our attitude as believers. That's not to be our attitude as Christians. And yet we sometimes I know I have a tendency sometimes to feel very helpless. What can I do? There's 330 million people in our country. If 300 million of them decide that this is okay and this is okay, now what am I going to do to change the course of the direction of our country? And maybe nothing. But, I mean, certainly I can decide and resolve that I'm going to remain faithful to the Lord, that I'm not going to go along. And, you know, if I end up being the only one who's, who, who's a voice of opposition, you know, ultimately I have to decide what my position is going to be based on God's Word, not based on, you know, what the news is telling me, not what the latest politician is encouraging me to do. So, you know, again, I, I can get very discouraged. You know, I feel a little bit helpless. I, I, I know that our, I know from the study of God's Word that God is extremely merciful, but yet I also fear that God's mercy is running out. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know when that will be. I don't know how much more He will put up with with regard to the direction that our nation is heading. We're about out of time, so I think uh, next week we'll, we'll pick up with verse number 19. Uh, does anybody have any, any comments or anything they want to contribute? Um, we've, we've got a few minutes if, if certainly somebody wants to interject something. Yes, Rick. God's Word. Yeah, I think um, we do see our our legal system certainly moving away from being dependent on God's word. Anyone else? Dave. Right. 
Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I also see, though, that um, things are changing quickly. Propositions that would have passed on the ballot in various states 10 years ago wouldn't pass now. So, but I mean, your point's very well taken. Anyone else? All right, well, you're, you are, we're done. Thank you.